Hi, I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. It's very lucky that we are able to be in contact, that we have not had an outage <laughs> on our on our recording connection here. And we don't have to do this episode the, via courier pigeons. We'd have had to do that. That would have been very... That would have been tricky. Um, I myself am not, I confess, uh, an active Facebook or Instagram user, but I do rather rely on WhatsApp. And I think, well, truth is, we do a bit, don't we, when we're talking about the podcast in the days leading that, up that to... That was a British a bit, by the way. We do. Yeah, we do a lot. And so <laughs> it did feel suddenly, isn't it weird? Because you get so used to technology that suddenly sending an ordinary text felt as if I was writing on parchment and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, with a quill and attaching it to, a, a, like you said, like a carrier pigeon. It, the amazing thing is, by the way, that what, uh, you said, as you said, you don't have Facebook or Instagram, but we do, the program does, Two Jews, and you uh, couldn't for a few hours upload pictures of your, I don't know, fancy kosher shepherd pie. So that was, uh, the, the world missed that. Um, <laughs> you, you know, one thing that I, I, I have to say about this, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound really terribly, you know, a technophobe, you know that, that about me. And I, I found this whole story a little bit reassuring, actually, because the fact that it was only resolved when the engineers could physically break in to where the servers were and reset the whole, reset the whole uh, system. Something about that made me feel really good. You know, when I was growing up, the movie that was the most popular movie there was Term- when I was growing up was Terminator 2. I'm sure you remember, you've probably seen this a dozen times, right? And the computers take the robots, take over the world, Skynet, you know, and then they lead to nuclear war, et cetera, et cetera. And you, I kind of, you kind of had that, not only in that movie, right? The apocalyptic narrative of robots and, 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 and computers taking over the world. And now you're saying that will never happen because you're ne- always going to have that guy at the end of the chain with his chainsaw, you know, opening the, the breaking in and physically resetting the, the Oh, I computers. see. So it's reassuring that in the end it does come down to something kind of physical. I know what you mean. And, and human. And, uh, and human. From, um, and what I've, from what I've read, it was essentially what they had to do was clamber in and turn it off and turn it on again, <laughs> which is essentially what we all do. It is the equivalent of sort of hitting the TV to make it uh, work. And this, that was quite good. Not a good week for um, tech giant Facebook, which of course nope. owns uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, and it was interesting because th- this was the week of the Facebook whistleblower, obviously Francis uh, Hogan, who, and all of these themes were really reinforcing stuff we had talked about with, on this very podcast with Kara Swisher, with Kara Swisher just um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, sure. I I don't want to slap ourselves in the back too much, but we were talking exactly about these themes uh, with Kara Swisher two weeks ago. She has been talking about this uh, for years. Obviously, the effect of someone from inside Facebook uh, uh, talking about this, bringing in uh, the documents. Um, Incredibly important. I remind you that uh, Kara Swisher was talking about the fact that Facebook needs to have uh, criminal implications and, and civil implications for their behavior. Some of that might be you know, coming very close uh, as as we speak because of these these recent developments. People always say this could be the moment. So we'll see if it is. But it does just go to show that unholy is where you need to be. We are ahead of the curve because what you hear here is then discussed on in the halls of Capitol Hill 
a mere fortnight later. But some big um, news going on in your neck of the woods. Uh, yeah, oh, well, always is, by the way. But yeah, from blunders and mishaps, the whole world can see to uh, covert operations that are supposed to be uh, uh, covert. So this week uh, in Israel, the biggest headline was uh, given by the Prime Minister, uh, Naftali Bennett, in his Knesset speech uh, as Israel's parliament resumed its winter session. So he returned to the story that kind of has been tugging on Israel's collective uh, uh, nerve system for the past 35 years. It's the kidnapping uh, and the mystery of the fate of Ron Arad, uh, the uh, MIA airman, uh, really an open wound in Israeli society. His plane exploded over Lebanon in 1986. He was captured uh, by a Shiite militia group and then probably apprehended uh, by uh, Iran. uh, And to this day, his fate is unknown. So the the prime minister stood in the Knesset and said, uh, basically, that there was a courageous Mossad operation to try and uncover any sort of uh, information about uh, Ronarad. What came out afterwards are reports that Mossad uh, agents extracted DNA from a body located in South Lebanon and a report that Mossad agents had kidnapped a former Iranian general in Syria and taken him for interrogation. So we wanted to talk uh, to a top expert on this. Ronan Bergman is an investigative journalist and author. Uh, he writes for the New York Times and Idiot Achronot in Israel. His recent book about the Mossad Rise and Kill First is a New York Times bestseller. By the way, Ronan, eight books by now, if I'm not mistaken? That's the seventh. I'm in the process of writing the eighth. Or, uh, <laughs> catching four. up with you there, Jonathan. Just saying. Nearly. Breathing, nearly breathing down your neck. <laughs> Ronan, <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us today. Thank you for the invite. Um, you published an extensive piece uh, today in Idiot Achronot exposing new information about the very long list of covert operations over the years to uncover what happened to Ron Arad. And it's, it's, it's really an amazing read. I mean, what we uncovered, what we discovered this week is not even the most extreme of stories. From everything you've been working on, what is the most sort of far-reaching thing that, that you've discovered? That's the probably the... Only question I cannot answer. <laughs> uh, the story was uh, heavily censored. So I cannot deal with the extra. I would just say mm-hmm. that the Ron Arad case, for various reasons, cultural, religious, social, because of all of those reasons, and espe- about all the MIA, but especially about Ron Arad, this frustrating uh, mystery that was, and still not, uh, solved for so many years, in many cases, that issue, which was supposed to be, you know, with all agony and, and, and respect to the suffering of him and his wife, but this is a, a humanitarian issue that is usually an annex to the events. It turned to be the event themselves, the creator, rather than the annex, created new history and not the best one for 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 the mid Middle East. And some of those secret operations that ended up with nothing about Ron Arad except for frustration created a new chain of blood and suffering and death, explosions and killings. And um, in the case of Ron Arad, the, the, the government, the intelligence community, the armed forces, the defensive establishment has gone to such a, a long extent and did so much that sometimes you need also to ask, is there a limit? Is there a limit to the state of Israel would do everything? You, you wrote something really interesting around the time of the Gilad Shalit deal 
that suggested that something had changed in Israel, that there was a time when the collective ethos of the country was ready to make a sacrifice. In other words, realising that giving up a thousand prisoners for the sake of one person to return was bad for the collective and therefore people would, out of collective solidarity, would not pay that price. And that now the Israel is somehow more individualistic a society and therefore the family of the one person would just say, look, you know, whatever it takes my, to bring back my son or daughter, you've got to go to the to any lengths, no matter how extreme. Just just say more about what that says. And, and when you think the kind of hinge point was, when the turning point might have come? I, I think that the end game of what you just described is the same. Uh, we, we feel the same about that, but I would maybe describe the process a little bit different. The feeling of... Uh, national pride, pra- uh, patriotism was there. The problem was not that the that the common collegiality was ready to accept a government decision to leave someone behind enemy lines and let him run. But there was a naive belief that everything that the leaders do is the right thing. Today, if there's Gilad Shalit or anyone else behind enemy lines, you can be sure that you will have a, a, a thunderous public opinion that would demand uh, Israel's return. And this is, you ask, when, this, when did that start? I think it started in October 1973. The crack in the naivete belief uh, that they will always be right, they will always be just, and that continued with the 1982 war, which just amplified the process of, with all due respect to the country, I also take care of myself. And it's not a coincidence that the first um, mother that started a fight, not against the terrorist organizations holding her son, but realizing that the decision is taking place in Israel was Miriam Grof, the, uh, the mother of Yoske Grof, one of the soldiers that were taken by Ahmed Jibril in 1982. And she started to speak over the radio. She threw herself physically on the car of the Ministry of Defense. She um, protested every day until the three, what was called the three prime ministers, there was a coalition government, unity uh, government, uh, Yitzhak Shamir, Shimon Peres, and uh, Yitzhak Rabin. They gave up on her because of her. You know, I wonder when we, 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 we return to our days and what Naftali Bennett actually said, and, and there was a big political uproar. Should he have said it and should he have not have said it? Yeah. The fact that this led to the publication saying, basically what happened, right? The the kidnapping and extraction of, of a body and, and some DNA remains. Um, does that at all, is that kind of a sticking a finger in the eyes of, of the Iranian regime? And is that something that Israel should be worried about at all? Well, you know, um, I am a journalist and I will never say that something should not be published. Uh, and also... You can call that poking them in the eye, but you can also understand or or see the impact of those publications. We are in a world where the impact, the, the, the media impact of everything that is happening is sometimes not less important than the actual operation. Mm-hmm. 
And the fact that the Iranians today are seeing Mossad agent under every bed and, and around every corner, paranoid, accusing each other that the other organization has a, uh, a, a Mossad, was infiltrated by the Mossad, etc. All of that damaged the Iranian leadership and their um, attempts to do, you know, nuclear stuff or insurgency stuff, damaged that significantly. So, as I said, it's all gum gum. It's, it's, it's both could ignite reaction. And by the way, look, Mossad has been quoting the New York Times, okay? Uh, the Mossad has been operating in Iran extensively in the last four years, and the Iranians were by far more hesitant or moderate or conservative in their reaction than everything, than, 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 than whatever you, you would think before that uh, happens. So maybe the Iranians are not the lions uh, or the, the, the gatekeepers for, for the gates of hell as they, as they want to portray themselves. Ronan, we, we could have continued this conversation on and on. You are an invaluable source of information. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Be well. Now, the delight of this podcast uh, is that we move from what is being discussed in Israel to what is being discussed in the wider Jewish world. And could there be a more stark contrast? Because while Israelis are debating the whole ethics of how far they go to bring back service personnel uh, who have fallen, uh, the Jewish world in diaspora has been agitated a little bit by a fascinating discussion which goes under, I have to say, the coinage is itself difficult, which is Jewface pretty unpleasant phrase, kicked into the public conversation by uh, the actor Sarah Silverman, who does a very good podcast. And she was talking about, on her podcast, the whole issue of casting and cross-ethnic casting, which is just a really interesting debate. As you know, obviously nobody anymore would countenance a white actor donning blackface to play uh, a black character. Similarly, the phrase yellow face when uh, Asian roles are given to non-Asian actors. And Sarah Silverman just went on to her podcast to say, so where is where are Jews in all this? Why is it that non-Jewish actors can be cast to play Jews? Well, let's just hear a bit of her making this point. One could argue, for instance, that a Gentile playing Joan Rivers correctly would be doing what is actually called Jew face. Jew face, doesn't feel good to say, uh, is defined as when a non-Jew portrays a Jew with the Jewishness front and center, um, often with makeup or changing of features, big fake nose, all the New Yorky or, or Yiddishy inflection. And in a time when the importance of representation is seen as so essential and so front and center, why does ours constantly get breached even today in the thick of it? I would start by saying there are two levels of discussion, right? The, the kind of underlining point is this, and, and generally speaking, right? Progressive left has the problem of saying that because Jews in general are uh, rich, and powerful in itself, this is a problematic thing to say. They don't need the protection. They're actually not 
counted as a minority. We talked about this on the podcast. And, and, and here this is extended to say, basically, why, if Jews are a minority, what she's saying is basically, if, they, if they're a minority, why the, the only minority where you don't have to a- cast an actor as the real thing, right? I mean, am I summarizing this? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, funnily enough, in that clip, she merged two issues, um, which mm-hmm. are separate. I mean, there's one thing which is the stereotypical depiction. So a non-Jewish actor, she literally talked about putting on a kind of big, big nose and, and you know, kind of mugging per- uh, performance, playing a kind of shrugging, mugging Jew. That That's problematic just right there because it's stereotypical and mm-hmm. potentially even kind of you know racist offensive. so offensive so that's one issue but then what about what i think is so interesting about what she's saying she's also objecting even when none of that goes on why are jewish parts being given to non-jewish actors now obviously there's a little bit of kind of special pleading there because you she doesn't say it but in that bit but you kind of guess that she would love to have been cast as joan rivers herself right yeah. that would have been a great part for somebody like sarah silverman fine that's completely uh okay uh, but even that is, you know, she is saying, I think, that is difficult because people don't think it's no, any more okay for other minorities to have themselves represented by other groups. So she bundled together two different points, stereotypical depiction and just but giving let's the part that. to Let's break else. that apart for a minute, if we can. Okay, the whole issue of stereotypical depiction of Jews, right? I mean, the... I don't know. The, the, the thing I'm going back to is Alec Guinness is, is Fagan, right? The evil character from Oliver Twist, right? 1948, I think. Has anyone, if anyone since is doing this caricature of a Jew, first of all, that's bad writing. But secondly, if you're watching it, are you bothered by the caricature or are you bothered by the fact if the actor is Jewish or not? Right, I'm so not sure if I'm really bothered by the fact that the, the actor is Jewish or not. I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by the fact that this is a stereotype. So, and so it, a Jewish actor did play uh, Fagin in the 1960s musical, Oliver. Actor Ron Moody played him. Mm-hmm. In a way, some of the depiction was still pretty stereotypical, but it, people said it was more affectionate and so on. Now, that's why I think these are there are two issues here, because I noticed myself, you know, the um, Mrs. Mizell story that was on... Uh, a streaming network. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Is that how you would say it? Maisel, Maisel. Okay. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. And that's. I'm I'm just pleasantly surprised you watched it, Jonathan. Oh, of course. It's just not up your alley. I'm just, I'm discovering something very new about you. I liked it. I kind of abandoned it, I think, once into the third season. I sort of got the idea. But that was a part where, to looking at the actor who played it, I don't think she was a Jewish actor who played the Rachel Brosnahan. She's yeah, not, Jewish. not Jewish, right? So we can play that game now. Jew or not a Jew? <laughs> um, Forget identity Jewish. politics. Let's play a game. Yes. Not so. a Jew. And, and I think Sarah Silverman's point is if it was an equivalent part of a character who was, you know, Asian American, they just would not even consider for a second having a non-Asian actor play that part. I know I think you're going to say, yeah, but you would be able to tell if it was a non-Asian actor. And that's the big difference. I don't know. Do you need me for this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm look, I'm I'm wondering about this. Of course there is an issue here. If we talk about blackface, which is terrible, right? Okay, of a white actor coloring his face, right? What would never work today, right? Sir Lawrence Olivier as 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 Othello. No, would never work. But that that's that's two issues, right? What is the problem with blackface? A, it's the fact that you're taking employment from black actors. Is this an issue for Jewish actors in Hollywood, I'm asking? And the other is the issue of respect, right? How do you portray the character? Now, when you use a term like Jew face, 
Okay. And she, she actually says, says she's uncomfortable with it. I think we're uncomfortable with it. We have to say Jews are not recognizable or not necessarily recognizable, right, in the way that other minorities are. Moreover, we have been for decades and centuries ridiculed for certain attributes unfairly and in a, in a racist way, in an anti-Semitic way, you know, case in point, the, the hooked nose. So to take that term deliberately, she's not the first one using it, coining it, right? But to take it and deliberately use it as the issue when you actually mean more Jewish behavior and Jewish, you know, uh, uh, mannerisms, I feel uncomfortable with the with yeah. the term itself. No, the term itself is is pretty tricky. Although she did go for in when she referenced there, you know, prosthetics to make the nose look because she was going directly to facial appearance. But she mentions in the podcast she name checks a British Jewish comedian, actor, writer David Bedil, mm-hmm. who's written a really successful polemic called "Jews Don't Count." And this is the bit of the argument that really interests me because what he says there is whether the objection is right or wrong about cross-ethnic casting is in a way not the point his point is why do progressive movements go up in arms when this is other minorities and not when it's jews and he he's not just talking about this acting issue he's talking about all kinds of things where you know uh uh, for example netflix have done this huge deal with the estate of roald dahl the um you know short story writer and children's writer who wrote charlie and the chocolate factory and so on Dahl was a really florid anti-Semite. I mean, I don't think that's even in dispute, and the family themselves have given a very low-key apology for his anti-Semitism. It is hard to imagine a writer who had as egregious uh, statements on the record uh, uh, against other races being still celebrated and venerated and big Netflix deal. Maybe it would, and people will write in with other examples. But I think even if if it did happen... The one thing you would be sure of is the left would say, the cultural left, the broad liberal left would say, this is not acceptable. And yet they don't say that about Roald Dahl or about the cross-ethnic casting. And that's the Jews don't count bit of it, which I think is the most interesting bit of the argument. It's a kind of progressive blind spot. I I completely agree. And I started by saying that. I think this is one example. I think she's right and David Badil's right. And by the way, you have been writing this as well. And that is true. There is a blind spot. And exactly it's the point. It's looking at Jews as a class, maybe more than an ethnic group. And it's saying, again, that Jews are uh, generally rich and powerful, and you know, which all of these things are in themselves uh, a problematic thing to say. And yeah, not just for, problematic, uh, sometimes just untrue. Right, I mean, and, and I not accurate this point, at all. I always yeah. make this point because my repeated point about living in the Haredi neighbourhood, <laughs> it is one of the poorest communities, I think, in London and, and in the wider country, actually. So it's just one of those stereotypes that really, on its face, is not true. Right, but if you follow that logic, you say, oh, well, then why are they a minority that needs to be protected, right? I mean, you don't... They don't count as a minority. And that is the problem, as you say, and I think we all agree that that is is the problem. I just don't know if the issue of casting is the hill you want to die on. Uh, metaphorically. And, and you know, I don't want to be flippant about this, but if we're living in a world in which um, non-Jews cannot play Jewish characters, Jonathan, then Bradley Whitford cannot be cast as Josh Lyman in uh, The West Wing. And that is just not a world, world I want to live in. We I don't want to live in that world. I no, I agree. I agree. Not the hill anybody would particularly want to die on, but a really interesting uh, discussion that is, you know, is there in many, many arenas. And Sarah Silverman went for the one in hers because 
Um, sure. That's the natural thing act, to do. But, you know, acting and Hollywood is her arena, so why not? Now, in that little-known third category that is neither chutzpah nor mensch, but a mention, I thought we would mention the debate there's been on Capitol Hill about funding uh, Israel's Iron Dome defense, uh, the anti-missile defense system. Uh, obviously, big amounts of money go from the United States to Israel to fund it. Uh, again, interesting because in when it went through the House, there were objections from the so-called squad, AOC, Ilan Omar, and others. And a lot of people really kicked off about that, suggesting it was somehow anti-Semitic of those congresswomen, uh, four of them who are constantly identified with that issue. But now it's been going through the Senate and there's been another objection and it comes this time from uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Um, and yet the, quest, the allegation is that the fuss has not been nearly as loud when it's Rand Paul, you know, white man, rather than, and white man and Republican, rather than, you know, liberal women of colour in the House. I don't know how true that is. It's an interesting... APAC did actually also condemn Rand Paul for his opposition, but it's just wor worth noting that there is this sort of proxy issue about, you know, attitudes to Israel that yeah, is being run through you, uh, the Yeah, although APAC and, and the Jewish Democratic Council of America both wrote about this, but, I, I mean, two things. Rand Paul is speaking uh, because he's a libertarian. He did just he objects to uh, just foreign aid in general, and, and the squad have an ideological issue, or issue, as you would say, um, with with Israel, um, I would just I know that we wanted to pivot from the topic we were talking about before, but you I, I think it does come from the same kind of uh, you would probably disagree come from the same kind of notion, right? If you think that Jews in general are not uh, a group that needs protection, and it's very easy for you to say, wait a minute, Israel is the strongest uh, uh, military power. Why does it need us to? Uh, fund uh, the Iron Dome. So it comes from a same, this is the squad, right? Uh, I can answer that if you'd like, but that is the the question uh, that, that comes, I think, from a very similar worldview. Yeah, no, I understand the point. I mean, I suppose I would say that you can't make that generalization that they're all they're so powerful and don't need protection about Jews. Whereas, just as a matter of kind of military reality, it is true that the Israeli military is pretty well equipped and pretty strong yeah it's region. also it's and also true that we're the only country that enemies say that they wants to annihilate and also true that what is called military aid is actually research and development is turning israel into a station of research and development for uh these kinds of of weapons but yeah yeah no this is your <laughs> this is one of our perennial <laughs> points of disagreement isn't it because i i do think that for israel's own sake this is the standing on its own two feet argument mm -hmm. that israel is you know big enough smart enough strong enough now to to pay its own way in the world you know we've talked before about all the high-tech billionaires around you know yeah. there's people in israel who could pay for this so i get that you have a tone but like you're going to cut my allowance soon and i'm, <laughs> I'm kind of worried about that so maybe That's we should right. <laughs> you, you have to give back the car keys okay so that is our mention um how about, chutzpah, uh, how about chutzpah, the classic chutzpah and mensch awards which we of should course, uh, go on. get to go chutzpah of course. Why? I, I do notice that in the last couple of programs, I'm the one doing the chutzpah. Do you? Yeah, do it says something, yeah. doesn't it? It does. We'll have to work it out does. what that is. 
<laughs> Just your classic uh, British understatement. Okay, so uh, chutzpah. We don't discriminate on chutzpah awards. We give it to Jews, to Arabs, to rich people, to plain, to just the lay folk and the kings as well. So our our our, our uh, nominee this week is King Abdallah of Jordan, who in a, there was a massive leak of financial documents on Sunday, uh, uh, dubbed the Pandora Papers. Uh, he is alleged to have used offshore accounts to spend more than a hundred million dollars on luxury homes in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, this while his own country is struggling uh, in many economic woes, including I think at the, the same day that this was published, he was uh, um, hosting a meeting with the uh, president of the World Bank, giving Jordan a billion dollars in aid. I would call the whole thing chutzpah, but especially the um, royal court's response to all this saying he paid for these things personally and it's not linked to public funds. Yeah, no, I agree. That is real chutzpah, especially actually, ha- you know, holding out the begging bowl to the World Bank. And you think, you know what, like I was saying about, the, you know, Israel and its ability to pay for the Iron Dome, the King of Jordan himself could dip in his own pocket, sell up a few of these prestige apartments and pay his own way. So yeah, I think that is worthy chutzpah nominee. Um, so for Mensch, uh, it's, I think, okay, this is a, a, a very sort of effect, story that has affected or has been very affecting to a lot of people in the UK and I think beyond, which is the oldest continuing functioning synagogue in Europe is in the city of London, capital C, meaning the square mile of London that is the financial district. Uh, it's called Beavis Marks. It is a beautiful uh, Sephardic synagogue, uh, still uh, f- you know lit by candlelight. I mean, beautiful services are held there. Uh, and it was threatened by the request for planning permission for a 48-storey office block right next door that would have would have denied Beavis Marks its natural light. It would have plunged this synagogue into darkness, and the fear was that the synagogue would just not be able to function. It would be uh, closed uh, in effect. And a huge campaign started um, with particularly British Jews in the forefront, but there was international support. Uh, and this week it did uh, bear fruit because the relevant planning committee threw out this proposal for the 48-storey sta- uh, tower. And so Beavis Marks is saved. As it happens, there is another planning permission request for another nearby building. So the battle is not over. But I think as the mensch, I would say the collective campaign, the historian Simon Sharma, uh, journalist Ben Judah and a whole lot of other people and of course the people from the synagogue itself Beavis Marks led this campaign I think there was something like 1700 objections wow. one of them was from me uh, I, I chipped in as well lots of people did and you know what it goes to something we've talked about just a small point about the British Jewish community which w- had this very sort of quietist approach in keeping its head down in the past didn't like to make a fuss this time it really kicked off and said you know hands off this synagogue we cherish it and love it it's been there for hundreds of years founded by people who'd fled originally from spain and portugal via holland in many cases it's an important part of our history we we, you know do not choke it off by denying it its light and the campaign has succeeded i love this story and especially i love the fact that jews from all walks of life who probably disagree on everything and anything would come together for this. And it actually worked. This is a beautiful story. This is why you do the mensch and I do the chutzpah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's a natural division of labor, isn't it? <laughs> I just bring sweetness and light into our world week after week. Um, 
I think if you if Instagram is back working, you can see us there with two Jews, no numbers, just letters, and you can subscribe and follow and rate us and generally spread the love wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we will say our thank yous to our executive producer Lior Friedman in, a, in with us in spirit, and thank you to Rom Atik, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music. Yeah, and a thanks to, to Ron and Bergman as well for joining us. And we will see each other Try next week. Try not to do anything silly until we meet again.